Emergency rooms are a lifeline for patients and for local hospitals as they stand in the gap to care for patients who need immediate and significant intervention, while also serving as a gateway to the rest of the hospital and its services. So, how do rural hospitals ensure that their emergency rooms meet the needs of their community in both clinical quality and patient experience? I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, our guest today is someone who runs our very own emergency room here right at Hillsdale Hospital. Someone who needs no introduction because they have been absolutely a godsend uh, to our hospital over the course of the last few years, uh, really walking hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder uh, with us during some of the most difficult times uh, here in, at our hospital's history, um, given uh, COVID and some of the serious challenges facing emergency departments today in America. Um, but most important, uh, this is an individual who is from our area uh, and has decided to come back right here to Hillsdale Hospital. That's right. We are talking with someone who works tirelessly to ensure that we have quality emergency care here in our own community. Our guest today is Val Hepker, clinical nurse manager and trauma coordinator of our emergency department here and services at Hillsdale Hospital. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Val. Thank you for having me. So to start, Val, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at Hillsdale Hospital? I started back in 2007 um, as a Cena here. I did in 2000. You were a Cena when you were here first. I did not realize that. Mm-hmm. I thought you were an RN last time you were here. No, well, I was. Um, so I did but the. You didn't, but you started as a Cena. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Okay. So in 2006, they had um, the TAP program. It was a 10 month oh, program that yes. did all the body structure function, mm-hmm. Cena class, EMT license. So I started with that. And in April of 2007, I offered a full time job. So I. Went back to school, worked here full-time while I was going to school at the University of Toledo in Ohio. And um, I graduated from there. I did my associates first, knowing I would get my bachelor's afterwards so I could start working as an RN. Mm-hmm. Um, went back, did my BSN, and I was here for a total of about nine years. Mm-hmm. I left for six. I went to Bronson Methodist in Kalamazoo and worked there in the ER and trauma. Um, coming back almost three years ago, October will be three years, I um, came back in the position I am now as the mm-hmm. manager. Okay. So, wow. So I didn't realize you started as a Cena here. I thought you were an RN when you started here back in the day. Yeah. No. Wow. Okay. Lots cool. of time here. So another great example of the TAP program, because I'm yeah. pretty sure you went through that. Sarah Butler went through that. Yep. Randy Holland, maybe too. I think. I'm not um, sure. Or something similar to mm-hmm. it. So very cool. Wow. Okay. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, Uh, Let's start with the why. And we do this on every episode so we get to know and our listeners get to know our guest just a little bit better. So, Val, what is your why? What motivates you each and every day? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do, which, by the way, is incredible work, saving lives, uh, creating a system where patients can receive quick, uh, high-quality care in our ER. Uh, You certainly are doing amazing work. But what motivates you to do this? Um, I guess for me, my why is um, the community and remembering that our staff are also the community. Mm-hmm. So yeah. mm-hmm. I was born and raised here. This is my start. And I, although I left, not because I was unhappy, but I wanted to grow as a nurse. And I had some really great experience to bring back with me. But 
coming back from working in a, a much more urban area um, really kind of proved some of the things that needed to change. Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. were already on the right direction, but it's also taking this job to be a better manager than what I had in the past, mm -hmm. making sure that our staff are taken care of because they're a part of our community too. They're right. raising their families here like I am. Their families are just as important or friends and mm -hmm. we should take mm -hmm. care of them too. I love that. So to start, what does your job require as an ER manager? Which is, I know a million things. I think my brain would explode if I had to do your job. But what is your day-to-day -day like besides crazy and different every day? <laughs> it is very, um, you get pulled in a lot of directions. Right. So yeah. I, you know, I do everything day-to-day -day as far as like staffing the department, um, attending all the meetings for that. But I also fill in holes when there's nobody to work or they're just drowning, going in and helping. Right. Um, having a manager that can step on the floor and do that job, I think gets you a little more credit as well. Mm -hmm. um, I also am the trauma program manager. So I'm facilitating all of the process, paperwork, follow-up, PI, injury prevention, stuff that we need for our trauma program. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also am the MCA coordinator for Hillsdale County. So mm -hmm. we do everything with our EMS. We set up our agendas, um, do any investigations to concerns. Dr. Wells and I work very closely mm -hmm. with that. Um, so we're involved closely with our EMS agencies. So yeah, can you explain um, med control a little bit to our listeners who maybe it's referred to something different where they are or they're just not personally familiar with what that is. Sure. So med control is actually um, in the way that people think of it. Med control is really your ER provider is working under Dr. Wells, who is our director. Mm -hmm. um, but if an EMS calls into quote unquote med control, it's to get either orders or they're they're working under their license. So um, right. EMS works under our license as an extension of our hospital. Mm -hmm. The MCA is an extension of the hospital, but isn't really owned by the hospital. It's to right. make sure our EMS agencies are following protocol, state mm -hmm. protocols, mm -hmm. um, and ensuring that they're giving care that is consistent with the rest of the state and right. standards. Right. Okay. So like if you're in the ambulance and the EMS um, staff have to call first before they can give you a certain medication. Med controls who they're calling. Yes, so they would call oh. the ER physician. That's See, I knew on. all the other stuff, but I didn't know that part of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they call the ER physician that's working, and they're obviously working under Dr. Wells as well. But right. there's certain protocols. So. EMS and pre-hospital follow different rules, regulations, and laws than mm -hmm. in-hospital staff do. Right. So there's a really big disconnect, and we're kind of talking different languages when you're talking EMS versus ER or in-hospital. So yeah. it's all emergency care, but you're not really talking the same language, yeah. okay. which leads to some complications. Right, right. So that helps to streamline everything, and it gives the the ER medical director is essentially also the medical directory of medical director of med control. Yes. And then that makes sure that everyone is on the same page, operating the same way. Yes. Some quality control, some checks and balances. Right. So if there's um, a complaint, so maybe there's um, an EMS agency brings a patient into our ER and we have to transfer that patient out to a tertiary center. The transferring agency may be upset if that mm -hmm. patient really shouldn't have came in the first place or they mm -hmm. felt like the patient shouldn't have came. There's there's a handful of things, not many, that really would dictate if you're within these criteria, Guidelines. you could go to another facility and safely make it there or you should try. Right. And if they 
felt like that patient should have went and they're ending up with the transfer later, maybe they would make a complaint either to the state or to us. And that would be for us to investigate, take our hospital hats off, put our, our med control hats on and investigate what care they were given, what the patient was coming in for, what did they see and know at the time and made mm-hmm. that decision and was it correct or not correct and what kind of remediation do we do or education? Okay, so you're really involved in emergency care inside the hospital and outside the hospital because of your role with med control. Yes. And then also as our trauma coordinator, you're working on all of that process. Tell us a little bit about what what that involves and what you're working on right now. With trauma, um, so we are... Um, We went through the process of being a provisional level four. Mm -hmm. So we essentially are operating as a level four trauma center. Um, That designation is really something that the state will come in and give us the official designation. Mm -hmm. However, there are certain criteria that you have to be doing. You have to be doing performance improvement. You have to be doing injury prevention in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, You have, it's a standard of care. It's a national standard of care for patients. And it's trying to make sure that people understand that if you come in for a traumatic injury, It doesn't matter if you come here or if you go to a level one, this process and what's getting started is going to be the same. You're going to get all of the same flow that you would get there, except maybe you need to be transferred later. We're going to stabilize what's going on and we can still take care of that and handle that. We just don't have the specialty for you just get to a certain step and have to hand off the patient essentially. Yes. Okay. Okay. Val, why is an ER like ours so important to a rural community? Now, you know, we have heard story after story uh, in the course of the last 10 years of hospitals that have closed. Uh, Their emergency departments were usually the last to shut their lights out. But uh, when they did, uh, what happened is patients received less care. Uh, The quality of that care obviously decreased in that community. uh, And patients were left traveling longer distances, uh, as well as waiting longer times for ambulance services to pick them up. So, uh, you know, obviously what we do each and every day is important for our rural community. Um, But what is your perspective on that? Why is it so important? And really, how does it benefit our rural residents to have emergency care so close uh, and at the center of our community? I think that historically, our community is a little bit different than other communities. And I think our population is a little bit different in how we think and how we view things. Um, Having our hospital here is crucial. Where we are located is dead center in the middle of nothing. Right. All of these larger facilities, especially your level ones and up, they're they're all an hour and a half away. It doesn't matter what direction you go. Mm -hmm. And depending on where you live in the county, being a bigger county, you have a 30 to 45 minute plus drive time to get to any facility, whether that's a smaller hospital like Coldwater, whether you're going to Jackson, whether you're going to Hickman and Adrian. Right. The ones that are in the adjacent counties to us can still be 30 and 45 minutes from where you are in Hillsdale County. Absolutely. That you would receive the same services or less at those facilities because they don't maybe offer all the services that we do. Right. And you can get here within 20 minutes. Yes. And the time you spend transferring there or trying to get there, those are those are critical moments. Those are the things that you're not perfusing, you're not getting enough oxygen, your heart muscle tissue is dying, you're, you, you need things started. Right, right. Well, and the other thing we know, too, is that, and there's now some, some evidence to back this up, but when rural hospitals close, aka emergency rooms, nine times out of ten, close, now there is the rural emergency hospital design, designation, so... There aren't a whole lot of hospitals that are that it's appropriate for that are taking advantage of it. But that is possible to still have the ER, even if the inpatient closes. But when a hospital closes, including the ER, we know that people die. 
And whether that is because of an immediate, urgent, acute reason that they died, or if it's because of long-term chronic care not being treated um, through the hospital itself or or through associated clinics and things like that, um, we know how valuable that is just from, from that measure alone, if you get down to the just the most basic issue. So let's talk about mental health care because the ER is increasingly becoming a primary point of both entry and actual care for patients experiencing a mental health crisis in the United States, in Michigan, and Hillsdale County. So as a rural hospital ER, we see it all the time, including patients boarding for days or even weeks, waiting on a bed. Then sometimes you get a bed, but we can't get transport, and you lose the bed, and you start all over. Absolutely. So what is that like for your staff, both on their end as the work that they're doing, but also having to see a patient go through that? Because that is obviously not the care that that patient needs, and that in itself can be heartbreaking. Um, But also, what are the risks that that poses? And what is your process to try and get that patient as quickly as possible to an appropriate level of care? So that obviously that has multiple answers. Um, so for our staff, you yeah, know, I think I just asked you like a hundred questions. Away. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'll try to I'll try to touch on all of them. Um, you know, our staff, we are really working. We have a, a great group, and we've kind of um, evolved over the last couple of years with who's came, who's went, and we're really at a good point with a lot of um, caring, empathetic people right now, and. Mm-hmm. Trying to really, one thing that I push with them is pulling yourself out and really remembering why we do this. Looking at your patients and remembering, you know, that could be my mom, that could be my grandma, that, you know, and likely it is uh, somebody you know. There's a lot of people in our community that we do know. Right. Watching those patients going through that journey with them is an emotional roller coaster for them. Yeah. Um, You have times where they're, they're good and they understand and you're trying to help them. And then... It escalates and it turns into a a very either aggressive or verbal or very just tense moment. And then you kind of come down from that. And then there's that lull again where they're sad and upset and they just went through this and they're trying to comfort the patient. And then you're okay for a while. And it's just a constant day in and day out when those patients are there for weeks. And you watch you watch these patients that don't want to be there. I don't want to be stuck in a room in an ER for days on end. When you're not having a mental when health I'm crisis. When I'm not having a mental yeah. health crisis, let alone going stir crazy when I am. Right. So the emotional part for staff gets wearing. The yeah. um, the hard part, too, is emergency rooms are not treatment centers for right. mental health. Right. So we see you and we make sure whether you're good to be admitted or go home and we'll help with the social work aspect of that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's not a psychiatrist that's stationed in every ER doing evaluations and doing right. exams on patients. So you also have these patients who haven't been on their medications for weeks at a time because for whatever reason, yeah. maybe they couldn't afford it. Maybe they decided they didn't want to take it. Who knows what it is? Right. And now you have to either try to get them started. You're giving medications to kind of get them to a point where they can rationalize that and start taking those medications. Mm-hmm. But if it's somebody who doesn't take those meds or we don't know what meds they were on or maybe it's a certain situation, now we're running into they could spend weeks in our ER and not be getting the appropriate medications. Right. Um, things that we do. So not only are they not getting better, they could also be getting worse because they're not taking what they already would have needed. Correct. Which is 
also a potential why they are having a crisis at the right. moment. Right. Um, so things that we do, we were working and have we have a good working relationship with um, our mental health unit here mm-hmm. and our um, provider, Sarah, she'll come down if they've been here for X amount of time and we're getting nowhere um as far as what kind of medications they should be on. She'll evaluate that patient for us, mm-hmm. kind of get a, an actual idea of what's going on with them, look at their chart, right. and give us recommendations. Right. She can't, she cannot accept them all, but right. she can help give us recommendations on mm-hmm. where to start. A lot of times when patients come in, we'll talk with, they've, we contract with a service, and mm-hmm. that service typically has had them and know what medications they're on. So we'll talk to them to get that list and try to get that started. Right. Um, but it really is, it's it's a problem because a lot of people want to get that treatment started, but we're not a treatment center. And right. so that's a very, especially when you come to drug use and alcohol use, right. patients have to be sober in order to be evaluated. And they, you know, we don't have a rehab here at our hospital for right. any sort of drug or alcohol. And that's a, a challenge because they have to take themselves willingly while they're sober to right. rehab. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so explain a little bit too about, so you mentioned that our um, Sarah, our, our psych nurse practitioner, who's our provider up on our BHU and, and works with our psychiatrist as well. Um, we can't take every mental health patient that comes through our ER to our behavioral health, to our inpatient behavioral health unit, which I think sometimes can be hard for people to understand. Like you have a behavioral health unit. Is it full? Not today then why do you have a mental health patient waiting in the ER? Can you explain a little bit of that? Why are we not always the right placement for that patient? And it's not just drugs and alcohol, right? There are other things that we don't necessarily have the right fit for the type of inpatient care that they need. Absolutely. So uh, first and foremost, we don't take any pediatric patients. So Mm -hmm. anybody under the age of 18 will never be admitted to our facility. Um, The common misconception with a lot of uh, people in the community is that, well, you have a mental health unit, so I'm going to go to your ER because then I'll just get upstairs. Right. Unfortunately, that's not really the way it works. Um, Although if they have an opening and they have people in their ER, they typically will try to take their own first. Mm -hmm. But there are multiple facilities across the state and all of the social workers, all of the caseworkers that are, are working with mental health patients are working, contacting these facilities to try to find placement for them. They will Mm -hmm. send um, the information to them. They review it and say yes or no. So there are certain criteria depending on how aggressive people are, depending on what medications they need, if they have any medical um, issues that need to be treated while they're there as well. Right. Um, There's a plethora of things. And it's every every mental health facility, every inpatient mental health facility really has a... um, a certain milieu that they try to keep and they right. it's that so kind of explain environment. that word milieu because i hear that and i don't like i can infer what i think it means but but can yeah. you give like what what are we specifically saying when you say milieu so it's it's kind of the like the environment on the floor so if you okay. when you have a group of patients that are trying to heal mentally our brain is an organ and i think the thing we forget sometimes Maybe it's just the way our society is. We're getting better at it, but, you know, we forget that our brain is an organ. Our brain needs to be taken care of the same as our heart and our lungs and all these other issues that we have, our pancreas with diabetes. I mean, everything needs care. Mm -hmm. And you have these patients who need care. They're having a crisis. If you put one person up there that doesn't really fit that um, 
feel, that temperament, that mm-hmm. environment that they have, it's going to start amping up their other other Patient, uh, patients right, okay. and clients, and they're yeah. going to start feeding off of that. They're already at such a vulnerable place for them that right. now they're going to start feeding into that, and it's going to just, it's like wildfire. Right. And you can't put somebody who is loud and aggressive, it doesn't, it's not a healing environment for them, and right. they need that. Right. And so it's, there's only certain facilities that we can place patients when they're in, in need of certain state. things. Okay. Yes. And so a lot of times, unfortunately, they board in the ER. They stay right. in the ER because the ER is loud and chaotic all the time. It's not a. It's not the place that you come to rest. Right. It's the place that you come to start healing. Right. And we get you where you need to go. Mm-hmm. But it's not. Unfortunately, those patients we can't really get them out of that department if there's not a good fit for them. Right. And you can't. So it's just, not just finding a bed. It's finding the right bed at the right place. Absolutely. So if you have a surgical, if you have somebody that comes in and they have. Um, you know, they just had their appendix out, but there was a few mm-hmm. complications, so they got admitted for an extra day. And you have another patient who comes in who has pneumonia, and they, you know, just need some antibiotics, and they just need to get feeling a little bit better. You can't put those patients in the same room if you right. double bed. Right. You'll make your surgical patient now potentially become potentially pneumonia. get pneumonia. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same concept, except okay. think of it like that makes mentally, so much sense. you know, like yeah. this is a whole different organ in a whole different environment, but you still can't cross some of those lines. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so once you know, okay, this, you know, so, so you have an, an MAG or a, a mental health patient come in, um, you determine they can't go to our behavioral health unit. Um, what is your process from there finding a finding placement for that patient and how much are you and your staff involved in that process as opposed to the physician or the APP who's working? Um, actually once we, so when a patient comes in, we will draw blood on them. We'll get urine on them. We clear them medically. The doctor sees them. They determine, is this something that could be caused from a medical condition? Yes or no. Okay. No, it's not perfect. Now we call our Lifeways Contracted Service. and okay. they Which send, is our Community Mental Health Center. Yes. And they send somebody who comes in and sits down and evaluates the patient. Okay. They go through their chart and their history. They have a um, face-to-face evaluation and go through all those check marks that they need to have. Once they have determined this patient has all the things they need to be safety planned, then we work on sending them home with a safety plan. If they need to be placed inpatient, now they start the process. They deal with that all in their own. So they take that with them and they start sending out all the information to the receiving facilities that are a potential fit. They have all, they know all of these facilities, right? Right, Like you know where you're going to be able to send people and what their resources are. Mm -hmm. So they start with, whoever is a good fit and they start sending that out once they start getting responses back no we're full we don't have any beds and we don't have any discharges for another week we um have a potential other patient so we'll review let you know kind of what we decide right um yes we think we could take it but we need you to send us the rest of this chart and have a nurse to nurse so we can kind of really figure out is this a good fit okay Mm -hmm. so then they call our nursing staff speaks with the nurse um the providers are really minimally involved as far as that process goes. Uh, they, If they need a provider to provider, they will call and talk to the provider yeah. at that facility. But typically, it's a nurse-to-nurse report, mm-hmm. and LifeWays sets up all of that um, typically okay. for us. So if the patient, because we had this issue recently, if the patient is not a resident of Hillsdale County or one of the other counties that LifeWays serves, um, then... What happens? Because 
they're not necessarily the ones who are doing that, right? So are we relying on the CMH from the county that patient is a resident of? And I imagine we don't have as close of a relationship with those counties because we don't work with them all the time like we work with LifeWays. Correct. Yeah. So the other thing that's a misconception for patients in the community is that, well, I'm going to go to this facility because I haven't had any luck over here or I think they have this uh, resource and I I just want to go there. Mm -hmm. So you get there. Mm -hmm. Well, you're a resident of a different county. LifeWays cannot evaluate you. We have to contact your county of origin. Just because of the nature of how community mental health centers are set up and funded and structured. Yes. Which is not, you know, any fault of our owner. It's not fair. It's not fair, but that's just how it's how it works. Right. Right. So we've we've had situations where you get people from multiple counties away that have driven to our facility because they've maybe had somebody that had a good experience or because they heard that we have a BHU unit and they want to come to the behavioral health unit. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to then contact their community mental health from their own county and they now have we're waiting the for them to come down and do their process and they have to likely drive to come do an actual evaluation for them yeah it's not necessarily a telehealth visit where right. we can facilitate that and we can't direct admit them to the bhu they have to have Correct. that intervening step yes so also unfortunately another step that plays a role in this is insurance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I understand the frustration with that because that is a big frustration of mine. I don't care what insurance people have. I'm going to take care of them. Right. I don't care that they don't have it. They still deserve care. Right. The problem, unfortunately, especially with some of our admissions and whether it's medical or behavioral health, is insurance reimbursement, what will be paid for, what won't. Because if your insurance doesn't pay for it, you're left with the bill, but you can't afford it. Right. And you have insurance for a reason. Now we're also limited on what availability we have to send you to what unit. Right, right. So let's shift into another issue that is, you know, connected to the mental health issue um, on some level, but is in and of itself one of the big problems and one of the the big talking points we hear people talk about when it comes to emergency care in the United States, not just here. Um, And that's transport. So you're involved again in medical and med control, the Hillsdale County Medical Control Authority that includes EMS and healthcare providers. Um, But let's talk about transport in particular. What are some of the difficulties that we have faced in our community? And does med control, the process of bringing all those people together, does that end up having any impact on some of those transport issues? Or does that really only focus on what level of care they can provide within the ambulance kind of stuff? So um, transport has always been a topic of conversation for healthcare, and mm-hmm. it is very challenging because you identify a patient that walks to the ER that needs to go to a, a larger facility for services that are not provided here. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to get them to that higher level of care. We want to get them where they need to go. But you also have a duty as EMS personnel to service and care for your community and the people here in your county. Right. So it's a really between a rock and a hard place kind of situation for our EMS agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, they, too, face a lot of staffing crisis. Right. And a lot of shortage there a lot. as well. Yeah. And so they're looking at this from a... Yes, that patient needs to go and they need to get care, but they are getting care in the ER that they're at. And the patient who's at home having a heart attack needs me to be here to get them and start care for them. Right. So also 
the people in our county deserve they deserve to be transported to get the care that they need. Right. And you're kind of just in this limited um, situation where you have to almost triage that and pick where do you go and who do you take? And it is a really hard decision for our EMS agencies to be able to sit there and say, unfortunately, I cannot take my last rig out of the county because I our need county here for 911 calls. Yes. Like yeah. somebody's going to need 911. And you have to understand that. Although maybe they're not getting all the services they need, they're getting care in the ER. Right. They're hopefully, typically stable. Yes. And even if they're not stable, they have to be to a certain point of stable to even transport out. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. You can't, you know, you think about people think, well, just call the helicopter. Sure. Yeah. Call the helicopter. But if you don't meet the right criteria, you can't. You can't just throw any patient out. in a helicopter. Yeah. No. And then you might get stuck with the bill as the patient because you might not have been appropriate, but everybody just wanted to get you out. Yeah. That doesn't work out. Your insurance may not pay for that. So, and that's a pretty big bill. And that's the last thing a patient wants to deal with after they've been through enough of a situation where they had to be, you know, transferred to a higher level of care. They've got enough to deal with to not have to worry about a big fat bill because they were inappropriately put in a helicopter. Yes. So, you also think about weather and where we're located and Michigan, all of our lakes, as storms come in from the west, you know, it picks mm-hmm. up speed, it picks up all, the, you know, you think about that stuff. And sure, we try to fly out patients when it meets criteria and when it's appropriate and when we have flight available. Absolutely. But you can't fly every patient. And when right. you fly, you lose stability going up in the air. So if you are... oh. 40% stable on the ground in the ER, when you go up into a helicopter and get in the air, you've now lost 10 to 15% of your stability. Oh, wow. And if you're at I a point... I never thought about that. Yeah. So you have a patient you just did CPR on, you got their heartbeat back, you're doing all the things. You have to make sure they're at a certain point before the flight crew will even load them. So it can be a true like medical and safety issue for the patient to be on a helicopter. It, because I guess I Absolutely. think of like the more severe their condition is the more likely they are to need a helicopter but only to a certain point because they may not actually be able to safely get on a helicopter if they're past a certain point of severity yes so even if you call a helicopter on scene say you have a an accident and there's a really unstable patient a trauma patient and they're they're not doing well you can call the helicopter on scene, but that crew is going to sit on scene and work that patient until they until get to they a certain get point. Until they safe enough to put them in the, in the bird and fly yes. them out. Yes, and okay. if you never reach that, now you're in a whole different ballgame. Now you right. have to load them out of the ambulance and you have to take them into okay. the nearest hospital or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, so although that's flight, you also have limitations on ground transport. You mm-hmm. have limitations on what the licensure level is of your rigs and your, your agencies. You have limitations on what the training has been, what protocols you have in place. You have this multiple facet situation that affects that people don't think about. Well, I right. just, I need care. So get me care. Yes, but I can't do that because of this. I don't care why. Just get me there. Right. There's legality, there's training. You don't want somebody who's not trained taking you. Right. And you don't want somebody. Exactly. You're going to get halfway there. And what happens if you code? What happens if your heart stops? What happens? You have one person in the back of that rig with you. They're going to tire out in a matter of a minute, two minutes doing CPR. They can do CPR on you for another 25 minutes until the driver gets you all the way there. Right. And they'd have to pull over or divert. And then they'd have to get other resources involved. And that turns into a different situation. And it's all delay, delay, and then you're not safe. Yes. Absolutely. Wow. So what about, because I feel like I've heard that there have been a couple occasions where because we could not get ground transport, but the patient had to get to a higher level of care, 
a helicopter was the only option, even though they were more appropriate for ground care? Does that happen? And how often does that happen? It does happen. Um, I would not say it's a regular occurrence, but okay. it's a regular enough that to say that it happens. Yeah. The, the thing you have to look at is when you're in the hospital and from in hospital view, it's this patient might be stable now, but I foresee in eight hours, this is what's going to happen if they don't get that. Right. Okay. So, but EMS is looking at that from a, they're getting care. And if they're not in that situation right now and I have nobody else to take them, yeah. they got to stay where they got to stay. Yeah. And so you might have somebody, but it's going to be at a bigger detriment to the patient to stay even though typically they may not have met criteria for the helicopter initially, we have no other options. And if we and have they no other have options, have to get to a cath lab, for the example, benefit out, outweighs that that cost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then you have that situation that we talked about that now the patient is stuck with a bill for that the cost comes, of it potentially, depending on what their insurance coverage sure. is. But it can be astronomically more expensive, not because they needed the chopper, but because there was no. Now, and that, that is going to, that's where it's going to come back onto our providers and documentation. Mm -hmm. Documentation of this may not, you know, this is not our first choice. However, this is what the impending potential is for this patient, which qualifies them because of this. Oh, okay. So, you so need sometimes to make that sure scarcity of ground transport can it be a can factor be a factor in getting the, the helicopter care covered yes. by the insurance company. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, it that's just depends good. on. If the right steps are followed and right. what and the if the right documentation is. is there and how hard the insurance company wants to work to deny the claim. Yes, true. So, okay, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Val, you're constantly working to improve our functionality, um, process flow, patient engagement, quality. Um, you're doing a phenomenal job. And you mentioned that for uh, provisional trauma designation and permanent trauma designation, uh, that uh, performance improvement is important for those. So, you know, what is the goal understanding that? What is the goal of you and your team moving forward right now as you work towards this very important certification? And I guess, you know, what are you trying to accomplish and what are the steps that you're taking towards these very important goals? Um. You know, I think that post-COVID, we are in such a uh, different state than what we were before. And that's yeah. kind of changed a lot of our outlook. Uh, with all of the staffing issues, everybody leaving healthcare, all of the crisis we've had on top of sicker patients, higher acuity patients, the number one goal right now is um, is staffing. And we're at a point now where we have a really good team. I come next month will be the last traveler, knock on wood, anything happening. And all of our travelers are out. We have permanent staff and, mm. um, which makes a huge difference, huge difference, he invested permanent staff, right? Kind, no, no offense to the travelers, but <laughs> yeah, you and know, our, obviously the more experience you have in one place, the, the better the care is overall. Absolutely. And the, you know, the traveler that we kept, we kept for a reason because they're a very compassionate, um, invested individual into their profession and they mm -hmm. care about people as, mm -hmm. as part of their profession. Um, but that was one thing was getting that staffing. So now that we have that staffing, we're finishing up some orientation for a couple of our mm -hmm. um, staff members. Which is a long time, by the way, for people who don't realize or maybe you don't work at this level, orienting a new nurse to a unit takes weeks. What is your um, training period for a new nurse? So 
a new hire depends on if they have any experience or if they're straight out of school. You know, ideally, emergency departments and specialty units don't hire new grads. Um, With the nursing shortage, a lot of facilities were kind of put in that predicament. Um, But on average, you start with at least a 12-week orientation, which is three months, and then you potentially go to 16. Um, I've worked at a facility that had six months, essentially, that was included in your orientation. Right. Um, a lot so of places a long, have a very... Once you get the nurse hired, it's not like you just filled your hole. Correct. Just because they went through two days of general orientation that yeah. every employee goes through. Right. It is a long time to, to then get them working the floor independently. Yes. And it's... There's no substitute for experience. It doesn't right. matter how great you did in school. It doesn't matter that the state of Michigan said that you had the minimum knowledge to pass your test. Right. You... You might have been a nurse for 10 years, but if you've never worked in rural versus urban, if you've never, I mean, there's a lot of factors. Right. So there's a lot that that we that we try to cover in that orientation. Right. right. So that so you're getting to that point where you've got maybe one or two left that are in an, a, a training period. And then once those two are done, you'll be able to get rid of your last traveler. So you'll have your staffing stability. So what's kind of next on your list? Um, so next is really just education with them. You know, we have a lot of moving parts, especially with this trauma designation. Having newer staff to our facility, you want to make sure that they understand how to use the equipment and what our equipment is compared to other facilities. You Mm -hmm. do education with them on um, what the process is with trauma, what's required with trauma, but also how to just give that same standard of care to those trauma patients. Right. Um, It's also the just that compassion, you know, working with people in remembering to, this isn't about us. Take right. yourself out of the equation. You know, yes, you might have seen 15 abdominal pains today, mm-hmm. but to this patient, it's an emergency right now. Right. And we have to be respectful of that. Right. Um, that um, compassion fatigue is something you really got to watch. And I imagine in the real. ER because you see a lot and it's there's probably more, um, you know, incidental uh traumatic experiences maybe that you are sure. having yourself or what you're witnessing with patients that I would imagine that's one of the hardest places mm-hmm. because on some level to be able to cope, you have to be able to compartmentalize, Sure, but you can't do it so much that you lose that empathy and that yeah. compassion for the patient. Right. Right. And, you know, I mean, unfortunately right now, People are, people are mean, you know, patients come in and they're not kind. They're not understanding. They're not thankful. Mm-hmm. They may be in the long run, but in that moment, they don't have the ability to um, to really just be thankful for what you're doing. They're scared or they're right. They Their don't mental, understand. Emotional capacity is pretty. It, it's spent it's, with what yes. they're dealing with, not with how nice am I being or how kind am I being to this exactly. nurse. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's taking things and understanding it's not to be. Don't take it personally, but also you do compartmentalize. You do have a situation where you have a bad patient and you work really hard and maybe you can't save that patient and you still have to go in to the next patient who's here Who for something twisted their ankle. Right. And it's the weekend and they just they can't get in to get an X-ray right. and they can't wait all weekend and they need the X-ray and they need to make sure that it's not broke so they can get a um, right. you know, cast or whatever. And it's those patients shouldn't feel any less important happened. or like they are somehow less um, 
genuinely in need yes. because the need is different. Absolutely. But they're still in need and right. we're still here to serve them and right. we're still here to give them what they need. So that part of that education, I, a big thing that I do is I try to be, number one, very transparent with my staff. I'm mm-hmm. very honest with them. I explain the why behind things because you don't get good cooperation and good buy-in if you don't have the why behind it. Right. Um, I also try to make it personal for them. Mm-hmm. I try to put it in ways that affect them personally so that they understand what I'm saying and the importance of it. Right. Um, A way that makes it really sink in and stick. Yes. And I think that, you know, it's it's helpful for me because I don't ask my staff to do anything that I can't already do mm-hmm. or if that I stepped on the floor that I'm not going to be able to do. Right. So... We, I mean, we work together as a team, but I think those are really the the big key points of this is what you're going to need to succeed here at Hillsdale. Right. And then, and we touch on other stuff when we go into education all of the time, but those are the big ones. Right. What are your, um, do you have any long-term goals or visions for the Hillsdale Hospital Emergency Department? Oh, gosh. Long-term. Well, um, JJ would like to get his pocketbook out and start taking some notes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we get a little sprucing up, have a yeah. little, you know, facelift for the ER. Um, you know, I think that um, having some invested, compassionate people that stay with us, mm-hmm. I'd really like to, I have a really great charge nurse right now, and I'd really like to get her um, in a position where she can do the day-to-day stuff and I can really focus more on our MCA and our trauma. Big picture um, stuff. Yeah, really make some of the changes. Our throughput is always a huge problem mm-hmm. um, because it always backflows. It always right. backlogs to something else. Yeah. And, is there and, an ED in America that doesn't feel like they need to improve their throughput? Yes. No, <laughs> Even the not. ones that have already there's made not. strides in certain areas probably Absolutely. are still like, but we got to do this. Yes. I think of another long-term goal is improving relationships throughout the, the facility. I mean, we... We utilize every other department. Right. We're involved with every other department. And they need us to do our job, but we need them to do theirs. And, you know, improving those relationships. And one thing that, you know, I have started doing with our orientation is making our our nurses go upstairs to med surge and doing mm. a week on med surge because yeah. they they should see it from that perspective and right. it helps us then if we do have patients that are here for longer periods of time how are we checking those orders how are we you know charting on those patients and making sure that we're closing that gap of those holds you know ER nurses historically are not floor nurses we don't want to be right. floor nurses don't want to be ER nurses right it's that we're good with all of that but it's also giving the patient what they need. And if we don't have enough beds or enough staff upstairs and we have somebody or we can't get them out, we still have to take care of that patient. And if that means they have a floor nurse, they have a floor nurse. And if you're an ER nurse, you got to be a floor nurse now right. too. You know what I mean? Right. So it's trying to close that gap too, which is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Luckily here, we don't have the degree that larger facilities do with the boarding and, right. and weights. Well, Val, once again, it's always a pleasure to have you here in our studio. You're a wealth of information. You're a shining star here at Hillsdale Hospital in our community. Uh, Really just uh, the epitome of what nursing care should be. Uh, You're all about the patient. Uh, You're all about ensuring that the patient gets the best care possible. And it's just really great to have you on our team. We're honored. We're privileged. And I'm so thankful that you joined us today on Rural Health Rising. Thank you for having me. Before we close, Val, we'd like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. And I know as a local uh, individual in our community who was raised here that you've got quite a few stories about, uh, obviously, the work you did on the farm. Um, You know, and we've heard all kinds of stories. So I want to know what is your most unique rural experience 
or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? So um, one of my memories is um, in the six years that I went to a, a level one trauma center, I was standing in the trauma room with all the people waiting for our patient to arrive. Mm-hmm. And the um, trauma physician that's standing there really was kind of downplaying the reason the patient was coming in, like not really understanding what the the seriousness of what his injuries could be. So mm-hmm. we were getting a patient. He had been working on um, an irrigation set and he was electrocuted and thrown off of that. And so it was kind of like just a lack of understanding for people who are in of like can they even picture what an irrigation system looks like and how this person was thrown from it or on it in the first place. Exactly. So you have, you know, these these legs are I mean, you can connect multiple legs. You can go forever, but they're, you know, over 20 feet in the air. You have water running through them. The electricity is not the same amount of electricity as like what's in the wall. Exactly. So you have such an increased amount. And so having the all of these, you know, I bet there's 15 people standing in the room waiting for this patient to get there. And this doctor's just kind of like, Mara's an old military doctor and this is just nothing. And so I pipe in and I start telling him like, well, you do understand that this is the height and you have yeah, these factors. This is and what actually what kind of, this means. Yeah, what phase of power it has and, and going through all of that. And my husband's a farmer, so thank you to my husband. Shout out to him um, and all the education he does. <laughs> yeah. I do listen And having to lived in a rural community, you know what that means. Whereas this doctor in this yeah. more, you know, urban suburban environment is like, huh, this doesn't sound like a big deal. And you're like, oh, no, right. this so is a big deal. Then he, he kind of asked like, well, how do you know? And I, you know, I explained to him and, and he, Everybody just kind of, you know, they kind of snicker, but they didn't make him feel bad by any means. But he didn't have anything else to say after that. And it was kind of that, like, nice moment of, you know, but also rural people, just because we're rural people doesn't mean that right. we're not at risk or that we don't, we're not educated or that we don't, right. you know, having that moment of, like, okay, but let me help this you understand, a, Yeah, this is like, a, an experience that you have no concept of. Yes. I have lived it, essentially, and I can tell you what this really means. Right. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. I love mm-hmm. that. Love mm-hmm. that. It's been great again having you today. Thanks for joining us. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com. 